This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Tonight's discussion is going to be on diabetes management and the nutrition implications for the many things that people with diabetes deal with. I did put my email up there. If there is some burning question that didn't get answered tonight, feel free. Um, I wanted to put some phone numbers up here as well. The Diabetes Teaching Center does offer workshops for people with type 2 diabetes and type 1 diabetes. The Diabetes and Pregnancy Program for anyone with gestational diabetes or type 1s or type 2s who are planning pregnancies. And then if you have any children that you need to direct to the um, Madison Pediatric Diabetes Clinic, those are the phone numbers. So... Diabetes, as you know, is largely self-managed, and diet and exercise are foundations to the care of diabetes. There are many people that have not only diabetes, but they're also um, juggling things like managing their lipids, their blood pressure, their weight, trying to learn things about exercise and how alcohol impacts them. So I think you've probably got these statistics, um, but just to put it in print again, 30 million Americans currently have diabetes, and about 90 to 95% of them have type 2. And 86 million people have prediabetes, which is an alarming number. In fact, it's about one-third of adults ages 20 and above, and it's almost 50% of adults who are 65 and over. And diabetes can be diagnosed with a fasting blood sugar, a glucose challenge test, or the hemoglobin A1C. And I just put the numbers up in terms of what represents normal prediabetes or diabetes. So metabolic syndrome is something that many type 2 people have, and it's a constellation of things. Um, In terms of the weight that's carried, it's found that if you carry weight in the center of your body, in the abdomen, that you have more risk of type 2 diabetes. It causes more insulin resistance when the weight is in the center part of the body versus larger hips and thighs. People with diabetes also have lipid problems. Many people, not everybody, but the ones that you see with Type 2 diabetes tend to be elevated triglycerides and a low HDL. And later in the talk, we'll talk about lipids and what those mean. Um, Often people have a high LDL, which is considered the bad kind of cholesterol. And hypertension is very common, high blood pressure. So I'm going to talk about nutrition considerations for these sorts of things as well. So when you're looking at weight and when it becomes a risk for diabetes, there are um, tables such as these where they classify its height to to weight. And it's not really a perfect measure, but these are the grades that they put based on BMI. And that can be calculated. I think the easiest way to calculate it is go on an app or go online and look up BMI. If you wanted to do the math, it's kilograms of weight divided by height in meters squares. But there's, there's apps everywhere for that. Um, obesity itself causes insulin resistance. And when you look at people with diabetes, three out of four do have extra weight to shed. And it doesn't mean people have to lose weight to what the textbook says. And I think that's what becomes frustrating is when somebody's told, okay, for your height, the textbook says you should weigh 120 pounds. And you think, well, gee, I, I weighed that in high school. 
Um, the fact of the matter is you don't have to weigh 120 pounds if you're five foot four or whatever. In fact, losing part of the weight, which we're going to talk about later, can make a big impact in decreasing insulin resistance, improving blood glucose control, improving blood pressure and lipids. And the Diabetes Prevention Program, DPP, supports the idea that weight control and exercise reduce the incidence of type 2 diabetes. When they studied people with pre-diabetes, those that went on to lose about 7% of their starting weight and exercised about 30 minutes a day had a tremendous decrease in progressing from pre-diabetes to diabetes. So weight loss diets, you know, there are many out there, and there's no perfect weight loss diet, but no matter how you dice it, women tend to lose weight when they get their calorie intake down to about 1,200 to 1,500. And that, of course, depends on the woman and her activity and, and her age. Men tend to lose weight on 1,500 to 1,800 calories a day. And when people are restricting calories to, to lose weight, it, it's a good thing to look at, are you shy of any nutrients? Do you need a calcium supplement? Are there vitamins that you might be lacking? So people can lose weight on various diets. Um, some of them aren't that healthy, and there's a lot of fad diets that come and go, so people will find what feels right for them. But the bottom line is you have to burn more calories than you eat. So the best diets are those that you can stick with long-term because I think a lot of people realize with crash dieting and getting weight off rapidly that oftentimes that weight comes right back, and that's the yo-yo syndrome. Um, so the best diets would be things that are nutritionally sound and are sustainable and enjoyable long-term. One pound of body fat is a storage of about 3,500 calories. And so usually when someone's talking about a weight loss calorie level, they will calculate somebody's estimated caloric needs and then subtract about 500 calories. Because a 500-calorie deficit per day, and you multiply by seven days in a week, that would be about 3,500 calories less in a week. And so that's oftentimes what people are striving for. So... Managing meals. Um, when it comes to diabetes, it's not only what you eat, the amounts you eat, but it's when you eat that affect blood glucose levels. So I want to look at all of those things. But it does not work very well to get all of your calories in one or two big meals in the day. It's best to distribute what you eat throughout the day. And generally, people can aim for three meals, but other people are happy with four or five smaller meals, and that's fine, too. Um, you know, roughly four to six hours apart for those main meals. And something that people don't often realize is you don't want to eat and go right to bed because blood glucose levels will fluctuate and they'll be highest maybe one or two hours after you eat. And if you eat dinner at 8 o'clock and go to bed at 10 o'clock, you're going to bed when your blood sugar is at its highest and it's harder for it to come down. So moving the dinner meal a little bit earlier, having it at least three hours before bed can be a strategy that helps in terms of, you know, what is your number when you wake up the next day, that fasting blood sugar. It's also important to look at snacks. You know, a lot of people are unaware of the afternoon snacking that goes on, and they roll into dinner time, and their numbers are already high before they have dinner. So controlling portion sizes and snacks is important. Sweets and refined grains, you know, limiting those makes sense. Um, it also makes sense not to skip meals because when people skip meals, they often are so hungry by the time the next meal rolls around that, that it's hard not to overeat. And for people who are on insulin and certain oral agents, certain pills for diabetes, going long periods of time can lead to hypoglycemia. 
So when you look at this just sort of cartoon image, um, it's showing the blue line, the blood glucose levels going up and down throughout the day. And it's going to go up and down according to the amount of carbohydrate, but also the type of carbohydrate. And every time people eat, some of that carbohydrate is going to be stored in the liver. So we break down our foods, our carbohydrate foods, into individual sugar molecules, which enter the bloodstream. And the blood first flows to the liver. So after you absorb all the nutrients from your meal, the first pass goes through the liver. It's called portal circulation. And the liver will grab some of the glucose and store it for later. And so every time you eat, some of that glucose is getting packed away in the liver. The liver's storage form is called glycogen. And the glycogen becomes your food source while you sleep. And so all night long, the glucose is coming out of the liver for the brain, the heart, the lungs, the kidneys. The body is not using as many calories while you sleep, but it's certainly using glucose to sustain life. That's called glycogen. So what happens if the liver runs out of glycogen? Okay, imagine those boys in Thailand that got stuck in the cave you saw in the news not long ago and they didn't eat for nine days. What happens is the body turns to itself for calories and for nutrition and for energy. And the amino acids from the muscles can break down and supply themselves to the liver. So the amino acids are the building blocks of protein. All proteins are made out of amino acids, including our muscles. And so if the muscles were to break down and supply those amino acids to the liver, the liver can dismantle it into its chemistry of carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen, kind of gets rid of the nitrogen, and it reassembles it as glucose. And so those boys use their muscles to produce glucose so their hearts would keep beating. Okay? So that's where the glucose comes from. You break down fat, and that turns to ketones. So the ketones come from fat breakdown. So I want to talk about carbohydrate foods because they have the main impact on the blood sugar. And so all of these foods shown here are going to be digested and turned into glucose and other individual sugars that enter the bloodstream. Foods that have little or no carbohydrate would be flesh, so meat, chicken, fish. Certain dairy products have carbs, milk and yogurt have carbs, but cheese, cream cheese, and cottage cheese have little to none. Cream and half and half also very low in carbs. Eggs, tofu, seeds, nuts, nut butters, avocados, all of the fats, oils, butter, margarine. And then some of the vegetables are so minimal in carbohydrate. Lettuce, for example, I think there's two grams of carbohydrate in a cup of lettuce, one of which is fiber. So it leaves you with one gram. I think you burn more than that chewing the lettuce, so I wouldn't count the lettuce, limes, or lemons. So why are carbohydrates important? So first of all, the main user of glucose is your brain. The brain uses more than any other part of your body, except you know if you're out exercising, the muscles are sucking it up as well. Um, but not only that, the foods, the carbohydrate food groups, carry specific nutrients. And plant foods like beans, whole grains, fruits and vegetables are rich in fibers. And we'll talk about the benefit of soluble and insoluble fiber later. Um, but each food group has its unique, you know, often uh, are rich in certain vitamins and minerals, and they don't always cross over that, that you know, not, not exactly the same. So a balanced diet is a, is a way to get the complement of nutrients that we need. 
Um, carbohydrates are also naturally low in saturated fat, and as you know, saturated fat is linked to heart disease. So I wanted to point out that you have at your fingertips, if you go online, this journal called Diabetes Care, and every January they come out with a supplement called Standards of Medical Care and Diabetes. And you can access that by going to diabetes.org and click on the professional section. There's lots of great information on type 1, type 2, gestational diabetes in their regular body of their website, but there's a tab that says professional. And if you click on that, you're going to see this journal, and this journal is filled with information that is science-based, reputable information, and it will often touch on the, the common things that came up that year. So there is a section on nutrition and lifestyle management in there, but there's also a section on medications and, and uh, treating hypertension and lipids and so forth. They now have an app, which is shown in the bottom there. You can download the ADA Standards of Care app as well. So when you ask, you know, well, how much of the diet should be carbohydrate? And this is where there's going to be debate forever into the future because not everybody's going to agree on this. And so I'll look at a couple of the things that are, um, are standards. So the 2015 to 2020 dietary guidelines are set by the Institutes of Medicine. And in the left column, what they're showing is their guideline for the breakdown of carbohydrate, protein, and fat in the diet. This isn't specifically for diabetes. This is the general guidelines for healthy Americans. And they're saying, and it's a wide, wide range, 45 to 65% of calories should be carbs. Now, having done diabetes management for 28 years, I'll say 60-65% is a lot, and I don't think most people with diabetes are going to tolerate that unless they're riding their bike to Utah this weekend. So you might, you know, you might not want to go on the upper ends. The protein, 10 to 35% is what they recommend as, as part of the diet, and the fat, 20 to 35%. Now, the Diabetes Care Journal that I just pointed out has done observational studies and looked at what the average intake is for people with diabetes, and the average intake falls around 45% of the calories coming from carbs. Some people higher, some people lower, but that's the average. And their protein uh, was noted at 15 to 20% and fat at 35 to 40. So most people fall pretty close to what would be generally a you know, guideline for a healthy, balanced diet anyway. In this case, the fat content was higher, a little bit higher, but provided that that's healthy fat, you know, heart-healthy, monounsaturated, polyunsaturated fats, that doesn't mean that's a bad thing. We're going to talk about the different types of fats in a bit. So, you know, I'm throwing numbers out there, and then people are, you know, like, what does that really mean for me? And so what I did was I crunched numbers just to give you a table that you could look at, and I did calorie intakes from 1,200 to 3,000. I don't know that anybody in the room needs 3,000 calories, but I've done, you know, diabetes management for 18-year-old football players who do. And so that's why there's such a a big table there. But I made four columns. Um, Remember that they said 45 to 65% carbs. I did 45 to 55, and I added 40 on my own because plenty of people can get by on less carbs and still have a healthy, balanced diet. And a lot of people with diabetes strive to be somewhat on the lighter side of carbs. I'm just suggesting without going too low, this might be a way of looking at it. Now, also, there's a a little guide up in the right corner 
calorieking.com. And what they have at calorieking.com is a little button that says, how many calories should I eat? And you plug in your height, weight, gender, your exercise level, and it will crunch those numbers and say, hey, you probably need about 1,800 calories a day. If you want to lose weight, 1,300. It gives you the buttons for do you want to lose or stay the same or gain weight. And then you come up with a basic calorie level, and then you could use this table to get an idea of how many carbs that might be. I do want to point out that the Food and Nutrition Board, Institutes of Medicine, National Academies of Science, have a minimum recommended amount of carbohydrate, and that's called the dietary reference intake. And that number is 130 grams. So that's their studied number of the amount of carbohydrate suggested for the basic functioning needs that doesn't include exercise. It doesn't include the fact that some people are six foot tall and have more muscle. So they're still suggesting calculating it based on somebody's personal needs, but they're giving a minimum of 130. And the funny thing is, is when you look at the table, it says if your age is 1 to 3, 130 grams. If your age is 4 to 8, 130 grams. All ages were 130 grams. Until you got to pregnancy, it was 175 so that would be um, where that number comes from. So if you wanted to just bypass all of those tables and all that math, you could just say, well, what's sort of a ballpark amount of carbohydrate people might want to aim for? And I broke it out into women and men, and then I gave three sections, maybe somebody who wanted to be on a lower-carb intake or somebody who was older, more sedentary. Um, a woman might be 30 to 60 grams at a meal, and a man might be 45 to 75 then you have younger people who are more fit and more active and, and you know, more muscular, and they have lower metabolism, or sorry, higher metabolisms, and they can burn more calories. And so you can see that there's a variety of, of things to choose from here. Okay, so I wanted to talk about insulin um, and type 1 diabetes, because when you're thinking about insulin for type 1 diabetes, that mealtime dose needs to be based on three things, really, at least three things. Carbohydrate content of the meal is a huge part of what drives that dose. And then the current blood sugar level as well. You know, if somebody's blood glucose is above where they want to be, they're going to add a corrective unit or two or whatever it is that they need to do. But there has to be a reflection on the physical activity. You know, have you been active all day? Did you just finish going to the gym? Or are you going to go play tennis afterwards? And so people with type 1 diabetes often use insulin to carbohydrate ratios where their team helps them figure out that one unit of insulin covers a certain amount of carbohydrate. Whereas in the past, there was just sort of sliding scale insulin where the doctor said, if your blood sugar is 100 to 150, take four units. And if it's 150 to 200, take five units. Something like that where it just sort of ramped up based on the blood glucose level. But what I want to point out is that had no uh, way possible of covering all meals. So just taking a dose based on a starting blood glucose level doesn't look forward at the food that's about to be eaten. So in this case on the left, you've got uh, an omelet, sausages, and a piece of toast with coffee, and it turns out to be 15 grams of carbohydrate. The toast is the only thing they're offering any carbohydrate. And if somebody was following their sliding scale and taking four units, four units might be way too much. And on the next day, they might have an equal amount of food that turns out to be much more carbohydrate. So the bagel, 60, banana, 30, juice, 30. 120 grams of carbohydrate 
and four units probably can't touch that. And so people would follow these you know, sliding scale insulin plans and get frustrated because they were checking their blood glucose, they were following their scale, they were taking their insulin, and the blood sugar did all kinds of things. So that is something that we work with people on is, is um, trying to help them develop an insulin-to-carbohydrate ratio. So they have the flexibility of eating a smaller meal one day, a larger meal the next day, and adjusting their own dose. That's where I come back to saying diabetes is, lar- is largely self-managed for many people. But I do know that there are people that take 70-30 insulin in you know, people with type 2 diabetes, not so many with type 1, But I did want to mention something about that and the impact of understanding carbohydrates even when you're not doing insulin-to-carbohydrate ratios. And what this diagram is showing is if the person was taking 70-30, that's two kinds of insulin mixed together, 70% NPH, for example, and 30% regular. And the blue represents the regular. So if somebody got a shot here, an injection at breakfast, the blue represents the regular insulin covering breakfast, and the green represents the slow onset and coverage of NPH, which peaks over the lunch hour and lasts all afternoon. So that's sort of the image of what the insulin's timing is. And again, they would take it at dinner. So the the pitfalls of that is, if you're taking a shot in the morning of 70-30, you have to eat lunch on time. That insulin is going to work, and you have to eat lunch four to five hours after that injection, or the insulin's cranking your blood sugar down, and there's nothing to go with it. Meal times have to be fixed. You can't decide you only want a Caesar salad. If you took something like NPH or 70-30 in the morning, you're having the same amount of carbs. And the NPH lasts all afternoon, and then people might be driven to eat snacks um, when they're not especially hungry. And sometimes people get low when both insulins are sort of acting at the same time. The regular hasn't worn off here where the arrow is. The NPH is really cranking up and together the synergistic effect is the insulin's very strong before lunch. There are other um, varieties of blended insulin. There's 70-30 made with a Humalog and a 75-25 made with Novolog, and those um, actually probably would cover breakfast and dinner better, but you'd still need to eat lunch on time because of this biphasic insulin, this insulin that comes on later. A really good Website that you could go to for nutrition information for your kids, for you know, um, planning how do you get more vegetables in your diet, how do you choose leaner proteins, is called choosemyplate.gov. And so no longer does the food pyramid exist. That's kind of ancient history now, and kids are learning about the plate model in schools. And so the basic concept is that about a quarter of the plate, slightly less, goes to fruit. About a quarter of the plate, slightly more, goes to vegetables, and you can see the grains on a quarter and a protein on a quarter with you know, a dairy source if, if interested on the side. And so this is the concept, the very simple concept of saying eat you know, healthy foods, a balanced diet, enjoy food, use some method of controlling portions, because portion control is so important for weight control and blood sugar control. Um, eat less sodium, and their big push is to drink water instead of sugary soft drinks. Another alternative plate model would be this one where you give half the plate to vegetables because really you can't eat too many vegetables. Um, There's nothing high, you know, they're high in vitamins, they're high in fiber, but they're low in calories, they're low in carbs, and they're rich in nutrition, and they help people fill up. So if people are trying to lose weight, 
the belly wants to be full, you put in more salads and vegetables, but you still include a healthy lean protein and a, and a serving of starch. And preferably those starches and grains are whole grains at least half the time. And then having a, a fruit on the side is fine. Having milk or yogurt on the side is fine. I think a very simple method of portioning, because, you know, it's really easy to go out and get served a very large portion. You start eating it, it's delicious, and you, you know, maybe eat until the plate's gone. Um, a reference point might be if your starch is the size of your own fist, that's probably a reasonable portion. So my fist is about a cup, a cup of quinoa is about 45 grams of carb, you know, a cup of beans is about 30, like that's reasonable. Palm of your hand for your protein, so about the thickness and the size of the palm of your hand for your protein, and if you're choosing a lean protein, that's a very adequate amount of protein at that meal. Fruit, something you could cup in your hand, really that image here, thanks to my teenage daughter who was my hand model, um, there is no limit on vegetables. Eat as many vegetables and salads as you'd like and, and you know, watch the added fat. So this is just one way of referencing things. Um, and it does give you sort of a consistent amount of carbohydrate if you are on medications that require a consistent amount of carbohydrate using the hand method as a way of eyeballing it when you're out at a restaurant. I mean, we don't leave home without these appendages. So there are carb counting options. So if you want to be really more accurate, you can go back to what we began talking about, which is carbohydrate counting. And we're going to look at labels, but you can also get food composition lists, carbohydrate counting books. Any chain restaurant now has their information online. And it's generally the name of the restaurant.com. So it would be subway.com, pfchangs.com any of those restaurants.com. And they'll have their chipotle.com. They'll have all of their items so you can look at the calories and the carbs and the sodium and try to make better choices. Um, Websites such as calorieking.com are databases where you can look up things like tamales and pizza and mixed dishes, uh, something like an Indian doll soup. You'll find those things online. And you can also use apps like MyFitnessPal, King Fit is an app with four diabetes experts with uh, videos five to ten minutes long. Doctor, a nurse, uh, exercise physiologist, and dietitian. They all have 18 to 20 videos. I'm, I'm one of them, I'll just say. But Miss um, Garnero is the other one, one of the other ones. But those are reputable videos that you could watch in five to ten minute increments to learn more about diabetes management. So let's look at a food label. The FDA updated the food label in July of this last summer, so in 2018. That's when all new packaging was supposed to start using the new label, but they do have a grace period to get their you know, printing up to date. But we're going to still be seeing the older food labels for some time because I'm sure you have freezers and pantries that have canned and frozen items that have an expiration date of 2021. Um, and so this is a look at, on the left, the, the food labels that we've been using for years, and on the right, the new one. And what they're, what they're trying to do is make the calories so much more obvious because so many people are struggling with weight. And they've standardized serving sizes, and they've made that bold and a little bit bigger. So it's to make it clearer of what you're getting. 
they also now show how much of the total sugar has been added. That's a new thing. The total carbohydrates are listed, and underneath that, it used to just say the sugars. Now it tells you how much is added versus naturally occurring. Because in the sugars column, that includes the sugar in milk, lactose, the sugar in fruit, fructose, and the added sugars, but now it breaks it out for you. And I also appreciate at the bottom that it tells us the milligrams of calcium. The old labels used to say 20%. That didn't tell people much, 20%. Well, I know that the dietary reference intake is 1,000, so 20% is 200, but most people wouldn't know that, and that's not something people should be expected to know. So the new labels tell you the milligrams um, of iron and calcium and so forth. So I think it's an improvement. So when you're looking for carb counting, you're going to want to check the serving size there. The number in parentheses is the weight. You're going to want to look at the total carbohydrate grams. It's really easy to get confused and look over here on the right column because it's bold and it's all lined up, but that's the percent daily value. And the percent daily value is based on the reference diet, 2,000 calories. That's not everybody. And so they're saying that it provides... 10% of your estimated carbohydrate needs. But again, I would look at the grams of carbohydrate. Now, in terms of fiber, fiber does not digest. It's a non-digestible carbohydrate. And so when you look at labels, we're going to compare two here. On the left, you see a tortilla. The serving size is one tortilla. The total carbohydrate is 13 grams, and the fiber is one gram. So the one gram of fiber doesn't digest. Now, if you're counting carbs, do you want to count it as 13 or 12? It really doesn't matter. It's not a big difference. But if you look at the label on the right, the tortilla says the carbohydrate is 10 and the fiber is 7, which means when you subtract that, you're only getting 3 grams of digestible carbohydrate because fiber doesn't digest. So now if somebody was taking insulin, this is a critical point. You need to subtract If you're counting carbs and adjusting your own insulin, you need to subtract the fiber when it's significant or you're getting too big of a dose. I know a teenager who had three of these tortillas and didn't subtract the fiber and took way too much insulin. So it's something for the insulin users to be aware of, especially. Now, carbohydrate counting list, this is just a sampling, but everything on this list has about 15 grams of carbohydrate in the serving size listed. So an 8-ounce cup of milk, a half a cup of starchy vegetables or beans, a third of a cup of cooked rice, pasta, quinoa, a slice of bread, small apple. All of these are 15 grams of carbs. So when people are carb counting, they get used to the foods they eat over and over. And, you know, they can have these on an app or they can have them as a paper. Now, I wanted to mention non-starchy vegetables, things like asparagus, beets, broccoli, cauliflower, all of those things, green beans. They do have a little bit of, of carbohydrate. And for people with type 2 diabetes, I would, I would generally say eat as much as you want. Don't worry about it. Don't count them. It's fine. But for people with type 1 diabetes who are adjusting their own insulin, it's something to think about. So they have less carbs. A half a cup has 5 grams of carb, whereas a half a cup of potatoes has 15. A half a cup of these has 5. Let's look at two different individuals Um, This is an example of Liz, who has type 1 diabetes, and her insulin-to-carbohydrate ratio is one unit for every five grams of carbohydrate. That's what she takes. She counts all her carbs and does the math. She eats two cups of vegetables. So a half a cup is five grams, two cups is 20 grams. 
on a one-to-five ratio, she needs four units of insulin. And sometimes I meet people with type 1 diabetes that are struggling with, why can't I just get my A1C down that last point? And it's things like this, just missing this one little subtlety that she eats enough vegetables that she's been missing her insulin for her vegetables. But then you have Ed, who has type 1 diabetes, and his insulin to carbohydrate ratio is 1 to 20. See, not everybody's the same. Don't change your insulin based on these examples of slides. Everyone's very different, and you should get that information from your, from your doctor, your health care provider. But he eats only a half a cup of vegetables. So a half a cup of vegetables is 5 grams of carb. He takes a unit for every 20 grams of carb. He only needs a quarter unit. He doesn't need to count his vegetables, you see. So whether or not you should count your vegetables has to do really about insulin use. Now let's talk about the variables that affect digestion. Normally, blood glucose would peak roughly one to two hours after you eat a meal. So often people are checking their blood glucose levels, and they tell me, yeah, I check every day when I wake up. So they only know one time of the day when they wake up. That's a pretty small amount of data. And if you're only going to check one time a day, why not mix it up and check sometimes an hour or two after breakfast, an hour or two after lunch, an hour or two after dinner. And if you're checking twice a day, why not rotate it and do before breakfast and after breakfast one day and the next day before lunch and after lunch so that you gather data about the different times of day so you can see how different foods affect you. So blood sugar does not always peak one to two hours after the meal. Liquids go right in. So on an empty stomach, liquids don't really stop. It's like a sink gravity. They're down into the intestine and absorbed very rapidly within 10 minutes probably for juice. If you have highly refined grains, white rice, white bread, they digest fast also, whereas a high fiber food digests more slowly. So the benefit of slowing down the digestion is that the blood glucose doesn't peak as high. Fat definitely has an impact on your digestion. So Fat affects the bottom of the stomach here where the arrow's showing the pyloric sphincter. Fat causes it to tighten up. So when you have a fatty meal, it needs to stay in the stomach longer, mixing and churning, getting more acid squirted on it, needs to prepare for digestion. And the pyloric sphincter is keeping that food up in your stomach longer. And that's going to delay the digestion of everything. So that, you know, if you had a big fatty meal and felt full forever, it's because you are. You're full much longer. Um... And that can sort of mess things up with your insulin, too, sometimes. But as I said, liquids are the fastest. And don't underestimate the impact of these drinks on your blood glucose level. A Red Bull has six teaspoons of sugar, whereas a regular soda, and I'm not trying to pick on any brands, they're all about the same, okay? Nine teaspoons per can of soda usually and a big kind of drink. You know, I'm not trying to point out any brands. I should have probably put mass black lines over them all, but... But, you know, those Frappa wonderful things are 14 teaspoons of sugar. And even what we consider a natural healthy thing like juice isn't necessarily a healthy thing for people who are struggling to control their blood sugar. Because that size juice, doesn't matter the brand, is probably equivalent to 15 teaspoons of sugar. The American Diabetes Association doesn't give much concrete, firm, firm diet advice. They give, you know, some general guidelines, but they say avoid sugar-sweetened beverages quite firmly. 
Now, the difference that I was saying between refined and whole grains has to do with the digestion timing. And so these two different colored curves are to illustrate that. The first one, this rise is more steep. The blood glucose goes up maybe more sharply after white rice, white bread, refined breakfast cereals, sweets, some sweets. And then the lower curve would be something more like your quinoa, your beans, black beans and brown rice meals, things like that. So they might have an equal amount of carbohydrate and a different effect on your blood glucose level. So you might eat 45 grams of carb with one meal and 45 grams of carb with a different meal and have entirely different blood glucose results. And that's where you can start to find benefit in some of these healthy whole grains and beans. Now, when you're using insulin, it's important to realize that the timing of the insulin needs to be peaking over the timing of the digestion of the meal. So this relative concentration look um, is showing you, in blue, the insulin timing of our rapid-acting insulins, like Humalog and Novolog. And when you inject those insulins, they really do work their strongest within 30, 60, 90, an hour two hours. They're, they're strong right away for the first couple of hours. By the third hour, they're kind of waning, and by four hours, that's pretty much their duration. But when you have a really fatty meal, like I'm talking cheeseburger and fries, um, fish and chips where everything's fried, or a cheesy meal like a quesadilla with sour cream and guacamole and chips, like everything's fatty. I mean, most meals have fat. That's fine. But I'm talking over-the-top fatty then your food's going to digest so much slower that this black line is showing you by the time the food is digesting, the insulin's already on its way down. And the first issue would be that the insulin's been cranking on you for the last 90 minutes, and your blood sugar could be dropping. You could be getting a low blood sugar with a belly full of pizza, and it's a timing thing. It's not that you counted the carbs wrong. It's just that they didn't show up in the same place at the same time. And then later when the food finally digests, the insulin's not strong enough to do much for it. And then at 10 o'clock, you check your blood glucose before bed, and it's like, darn, I'm 210 again. You know, it's the, it's the where did the high number come from? And that's the mismatching of the digestion and the insulin. So it's really important to understand what kind of insulin you're on and when it works. So the same can be looked at in the opposite, you know, kind of situation. Here's the insulin action of those rapid-acting insulins. And what about the person who says, but I am going to have this big smoothie, and I'll just count the carbs. You know, it's 90 carbs, and I'll take 10 units or whatever. They take this whopping dose. But the thing is, the juice is all in in 10 to 15 minutes from from your lips to your fingertips where you can test it. I call it lips to tips, 10 to 15 minutes. And the insulin is not going to be strong enough at that point to cover it all, so you could really escape and have this high number. But my concern is also that the insulin's going to last four hours and the juice isn't. So I, I don't know what's going to happen. So sometimes people end up getting low a few hours later because their meal was all liquid. So I wanted to touch on sweeteners. That's a question that often comes up when we're talking about carbohydrate. None of these have carbohydrate, but there's still something that we should look at. They're not all the same. Um, there is a lot of information and a lot of misinformation out there on the sweeteners. So I just wanted to touch on them briefly. They're all FDA approved. Um, I'll start at the bottom. 
because that's the, the most recent one on the market, Stevia, Truvia. That, that's made from a leaf of a plant. It's extracted from a Stevia plant, and it's been chewed on in South America for centuries. Um, sucralose is Splenda. That's the yellow packet. It's made from sugar cane. There's nothing else added. It's just processed differently. You can go to their website, and you can see a little video clip on it. Um, Asulfame K. K is, in chemistry, potassium. So it's a potassium derivative sweetener. Um, aspartame. Remember we were talking about amino acids are the building blocks of proteins? Aspartame is made out of two amino acids, specifically phenylalanine and aspartic acid. So it's not actually a chemical sweetener. Um, I'm not trying to convince anybody to choose to use these if they don't want to. I'm just telling you what they're made out of. Uh, Saccharin is made in a lab. So saccharin is a manufactured um, sweetener, and it's the one that's been around since the 1800s, so it's been around more than 100 years. It did have a warning on the label for about 30 years, and that's because when they originally did some studies on saccharin, which, well, they were here before the FDA, so it had been in the market for a long time. Then they said, why don't you guys study it? And of the 100 rats that were given saccharin, four got tumors in their bladders, and in the 100 rats in the placebo group, two got tumors. So it was four versus two. But the warning went on, and it stayed on for about 30 years. And then they never saw those specific tumors show up in human bladders. So after about 30 years, people were questioning, well, why aren't humans getting that specific tumor? And so they studied it again, and they realized the physiology of the rat was so different than the bladder of the human that humans didn't stand that same risk. So that's why they took the warning off. So there's a little background on some of the sweeteners. But I would direct you to the links on the bottom. The one on the very bottom, um, well, actually the, one, the first one, position paper on sweeteners from the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. I put the URL there. It's an excellent, like, seven- or eight-page document. You can learn all about sweeteners. I do want to point out sugar alcohol is something different. Sugar alcohol is still a carbohydrate. So I'm sure you see, you know, sugar-free cough drops and sugar-free chocolates and sugar-free ice cream and syrups and things like that, cookies. So what does that really mean? So sugar alcohol is a modified sugar. So what's represented in this um, image down here, this little six-sided hexose, that's, that's what glucose is drawn like in a chemistry book. It's a six-sided structure. And when you turn a sugar into a sugar alcohol, what you're adding is an oxygen and a hydrogen molecule. So in, in chemistry, that's called an, al an alcohol group. It's not alcohol like bourbon or anything. It's, it's a chemistry term. So this is how they name sugar alcohols. You can turn fructose into sugar alcohol, sucrose, lactose. You know, lactose becomes lactitol. Maltose becomes maltitol. So those are the sugar alcohols. And the issue with them that can be misleading is they are still a carbohydrate and people do digest them and it does contribute some glucose into the blood, but they're hard to digest. So a lot of people get gas, cramps, bloating, some people diarrhea. So if you're a user of those products, it's not like a danger to you. It's not going to hurt you, but it's not like they're calorie free. When you look side by side in those candies, the calories are the same, the fat's the same, the carbs are the same. It's one's made with sugar, one's made with sugar alcohol. So just be aware of what you're getting. And if you're getting gassy, just get the regular one. I mean, I'm all for really good chocolate, but um, it's just all in moderation. 
So labeling, just to point out what sugar-free candy label would look like, on the left, you can see on the front of the package it said sugar-free. And on the back, the consumer looks sugars zero. And they get all excited that they found a sugar-free candy and the sugars were zero. The problem is, is it's just listed in the next line down, sugar alcohol 21 grams. didn't go away. It just is one line down. So many people don't notice that. But the calories and the carbs are, are the same as the other product. Now, when you look at something that's called no sugar added, what that means is they can't say sugar-free because there's natural sugar in it. So if you've got a, a yogurt or an ice cream, that's got lactose, which is a natural sugar. So they shouldn't be saying sugar-free, but they can say no sugar added. So when you look at that label, you can see that this has 4 grams of natural sugar, 11 grams of sugar alcohol. So when you are looking at labels, be a label detective and make sure make sure you're seeing the information you're looking for. So I wanted to just talk about, in general, a lot of people um, that I've seen in the past with diabetes will react to their blood glucose levels being elevated by making a change to what they're about to eat. And sometimes that's really a good thing to do. Um, but I've also seen it to the extent where a parent will check the child's blood glucose, and it's elevated, so they skip the milk. They skip the fruit, and they get a diet soda with dinner. And pretty soon that's happening over and over and over, and that kid's not getting the nutrients the kid needs. And we're all like that. We all need nutrients. And so if it's a repeated issue that keeps happening, you need to look at the medications to correct the issue up front so that you are able to eat a healthy, balanced diet. You know, but... On a day-to-day -day basis, you want to be able to eat a healthy, balanced diet, but there will be days when the glucose levels are elevated, and yeah, it would be better to have a low-carb lunch and get that blood glucose out of the 300s or whatever. Um, but I've also seen people who want a snack in the afternoon, and they don't want to take another injection. So they're snacking on salami and bologna and cheese and all of those things, and those are specifically high in saturated fat, and 100 calories in every ounce that they eat. And so I see that sometimes backfire in terms of cardiac health or weight. So um, the other thing is, is some people just have it in their head that insulin is bad. Insulin's a hormone, and a hormone that's needed for life. And so if you need insulin, you need insulin. Um, and if you need four units or you need eight units or you need 10 units, it's what you need to be able to have a healthy, balanced diet. So what are the long-term implications of just going year after year after year cutting out healthy foods is the question. So well, let's look for leaner proteins. That's one way to help keep the heart healthy. And leaner proteins are defined by the amount of fat they have. The lean meats have between 0 to 3 grams of fat per ounce. And I've listed some examples, sirloin, tenderloin, skinless poultry, fish, shellfish, also, they do have certain low-fat hot dogs and low-fat cheeses, but you would look at the label and check the grams of fat. Low-fat is 0 to 3 grams of fat per ounce. Medium-fat items like corned beef, ground beef, poultry with the skin on, those have between 4 to 7 grams of fat per ounce. And there are cheeses that fall in that category, like the 2% reduced-fat cheeses. Mozzarella and ricotta are naturally in the, in the medium-fat range. And then there's the high-fat group. And the high-fat group has at least 8 grams of fat per ounce. Bacon, sausage, hot dog, salami, bratwurst, things like cheddar jack, brie, all of the regular cheeses. And so 
it can add up if your portion sizes of protein are large. You know, so watch how often you choose from which group. In terms of how it adds up, looking at a six-ounce portion of lean protein, another definition of lean is it's about 45 calories per ounce. So if you had a six-ounce portion, you're getting about 270 calories. So in terms of what does that look like, a deck of cards is about three ounces. So it would be two decks of cards. It's similar to the palm of my hand, twice similar. Um, and if that was a high-fat protein like sausage, bacon, salami, bologna, or cheese, six ounces is 600 calories, and that's a pretty significant difference, 270 versus 600. And if that happens once in a while, it's not a problem, but if it's happening once a day or twice a day, then all those extra calories are adding up. And if that's adding up to an increased weight year by year, then it's having a negative impact. Back to that comment in the very beginning about the Institutes of Medicine saying that our diets could be about 20 to 35 percent fat and still be healthy. And that is true if you choose healthy types of fat. To show you what that would be in grams, again, I've got different calorie levels on the left, 1,200, 16, 1,800, and so forth. And on the right, I've done the math to show you how many grams of fat that would be. So if you had somebody on a 1,600-calorie diet that person would be, you know, somewhere between 35 and 62 grams of fat a day. Or 1,800, maybe, 40 to 70. The standard U.S. diet, the labels are based on 2,000 calories, which is way too much for most women, unless they're young women. 44 to, to 78 grams of fat. Well, look at this one meal. A deluxe cheeseburger, a large order of fries, and a 16-ounce shake has 100 grams of fat. Okay, so it blows it beyond one meal, and they've had twice as much fat as they should have for the day, and this is where people get into trouble. I don't know the statistic, but a large number of people eat at fast food restaurants every day. So it's not that you can't, you know, we all end up in Bakersfield sometimes. And (laughs) so... If you're traveling and you find yourself taking that exit, you can still do better. You can get the grilled chicken sandwich, side salad, the fruit, you know. If you're going to get a soda, get a diet soda or something like that. So if you're trying to trim calories, limit how often you hit the fast food restaurants or know what you're getting. Go to their websites and look at the choices. Use leaner proteins. Now the dairy products, this is, you know, This is debatable. It says use lower-fat dairy products. That's a personal decision, and it depends on how much you have. So I put half and half in my coffee, the real stuff, and I have one cup, and I don't feel bad about it. Um, But if people are drinking a half a gallon of milk or even a quart of milk every day and it's whole milk, that's a lot of extra calories. So you're looking at it in terms of calories, and the butter fat is why. You get the same amount of calcium, whether you're getting 2% milk or whatever. Added fats in moderation. It doesn't mean you have to be on a low-fat diet, but, you know, they add up quickly, so pay attention. And cook in a lower-fat method. That's really important. A a, a small order of French fries, three ounces of French fries, is about pretty close to 300 calories. And if it's just a three-ounce boiled potato, it's 80 calories. So the difference between 80 and 300 is how much fat soaks into the frying process. So when you deep fry foods, you get a lot more calories. You know, once in a while is fine, again, but, you know, just watch how often everything is fried. 
opt for a lower calorie beverage, alcohol is especially high in calories. Um, and then you can use methods of portioning, such as the plate method that I showed you earlier or the hand method as a way of keeping portion sizes controlled. So as promised, I said we'd touch on uh, lipids, and I think it's important to know what the targets are. The serum lipid targets for cholesterol, less than 200. I generally don't even look at the total cholesterol. I look at the, the individual things, like the triglycerides, LDL, and HDL. The goal for triglycerides is less than 150. The goal for LDL depends on a few things. It's generally for people with diabetes to be less than 100. But if you have multiple risk factors, and remember, many people with type 2 diabetes have multiple risk factors because it's this metabolic syndrome where they have hypertension, they are struggling with weight, they do have dyslipidemia. Well, when you have multiple risk factors, they want the LDL cholesterol under 70 to be safest. The HDL is the good cholesterol. It's good because it cleans out your blood vessels. And for men, it should be above 40. And women, it should be above 50. And many people struggle with having low HDL. It's part of the metabolic syndrome of having an HDL of 30 or something. It's too low. You don't have enough of the Boy Scout cleanup crew out there. Lipid management. So what do you do about it? Well, when people lose weight, their lipids shift somewhat, and that's in a positive direction. So weight loss does have that benefit of crossing over and helping with heart health. Exercise helps lipids. And in fact, exercise is one of the ways that people raise their HDL. But the key dietary strategy when you have high LDL is to limit saturated fats, which are predominantly in animal fats, limit hydrogenated fats and trans fats. Now, they've gone a long ways in the last decade to get trans fats out of our diet, which is great. Another thing that I'll show you in a minute with a different slide is increasing soluble fiber helps. If you do have elevated triglycerides, then there's several things that people are going to focus on, which is optimizing your glucose control. Because when your blood, when your A1C is elevated, then the triglycerides tend to be worse. And cutting down on the sweets, the white grains, and alcohol are all ways to help lower triglycerides. And then sometimes your doctor might be recommending fish oil capsules, omega-3 fats. Now, the labels do give us the information. So the total fat is listed on the labels, and they're required to tell you the saturated fat and the trans fat. That's a requirement. Sometimes they'll give you extra information and tell you about the monounsaturated healthy fats and so forth, but that's required. And the goal for trans fat is zero, okay? It should be zero. The only thing is, is they can say zero if it's anything less than 0.5. So if it's 0.49, they can still say zero. And so in order to figure out which foods are going to have those hidden trans fats, you're going to want to read the ingredients list. And in the ingredients list, you can identify the risk by the word hydrogenated, So if it's got hydrogenated oils or partially hydrogenated oils, then that carries the risk of having some trans fats. Now, if you're having one portion, that's one thing. But if you're having multiple portions, that that adds up. Um, A quick tip in identifying the healthy fats versus the not-so-healthy fats, the healthy fats are liquid at room temperature If you take something out of your cupboard and it's liquid, it is not going to clog your arteries. It is not going to raise your LDL. 
whether it's canola oil, olive oil, peanut oil, sesame oil, corn oil, they're not going to clog your arteries. None of them are low fat. They're all pure fat, but those are considered heart-healthy fats. They typically come from plant foods, which include things like your nuts and your nut butters and your avocados and all your plant oils. The not-so-heart-healthy ones tend to be sludgy, thick fats. The fat, the white fat in the, in the meat, that thick white fat is a saturated fat. The fat in, in dairy products, cheeses, brie, t- tends to be a saturated fat. Here's a little table that separates them. The monounsaturated fats are very heart-healthy. Olive oil is not the only one. Canola and peanut oil are rich in monounsaturated fats as well as avocados and some of the nuts. The polyunsaturated fats are a lot of the other vegetable and nut oils, but one of the healthiest fats you can have are the omega-3 fats found in things like salmon, but it's not just fish. You find some in walnuts and tofu and soy products and flax seeds and so forth. Um, Those fats help reduce your risk of heart attack. They do help prevent clogging and little platelet aggregation. The saturated fats on the right side doesn't mean you can't butter your toast. I butter my corn on the cob. Um, it's just don't put half a stick of butter in the big baked potato. You know, Use moderation in the fats that aren't as healthy for you. Include soluble fiber. So I have two slides on this. The next one's the visual, so we'll walk through a whole visual scenario. But I wanted to just say soluble fiber is a kind of fiber that helps lower cholesterol. And I want to explain how. Because you've all seen that oatmeal's good for your heart. But nobody's ever told you what I'm going to tell you. But basically, soluble fiber is the kind of fiber that swells up. And oats swell up and get gooey. And lentils and kidney beans and black beans swell up. And they absorb things. That's the soluble fiber absorbing that water. Um, The other kind of fiber, insoluble fiber, is sort of the roughage stuff. Like bran flakes, you pour it in water, it floats all day doesn't absorb anything. That's insoluble fiber. So the soluble fiber helps us, and it has to do with bile. So I'm going to give you a few sources of soluble fiber here, the cereal grains, oatmeal, especially high in in things like legumes, beans, black beans, um, and some fruits, papaya, citrus fruit, strawberries. I want to fast forward to the next slide because it's a little bit easier to follow. We're going to start at the top right corner. So bile is a digestive juice, and cholesterol is the precursor. So you make bile out of cholesterol, and that happens in the liver. And then the, the bile will travel to the upper intestine. Bile is a digestive juice for fats. So it helps to break up dietary fats and helps to transport those fats into the bloodstream. Okay, So that's the first thing to know is, Cholesterol turns into bile. Bile comes into the upper intestine to digest fats. Now back to the soluble fiber. Here's the soluble fiber here. Soluble fiber travels through the intestine. It's absorbing things. It absorbs. That's what soluble fiber does. It absorbs the bile. So the bile can't be reused. Normally, what you see here is that bile is normally transported back to the liver and used again. In fact, in one meal, it's reused. It's circulated. Oh, it's recycled. So the bile comes in the upper intestine, and in the lower intestine, it's reabsorbed, okay? But not if it gets stuck in the bile. 
the bile, sorry, not if it gets stuck in the, in the soluble fiber. It goes down the toilet because we don't digest fiber. So the takeoff on that is you have to make more bile. If you lose your bile in your fiber, you have to make more. What do you make it out of? Back to the top right, you make it out of cholesterol. So you're lowering your cholesterol by eating soluble fiber. Okay? So it's a really nice thing to do. Have your hummus, have your split pea and lentil soups and your dal and, and your, you know, your bean, beans and brown rice. Okay, back to those triglycerides. When people have elevated triglycerides, they do have to watch their overall intake of fat. It's not just the saturated fat. It's all of the fats. If you have a fatty diet, you tend to have higher triglycerides. But you have to limit the sweets and the refined grains. And I have a slide to show you why on that as well. And then you have to limit alcohol. Alcohol does raise triglycerides. Weight control helps. Blood glucose control helps when you're managing your triglycerides. And again, those omega-3 fats. But I wanted to show you this slide. So let's talk about high fructose sweeteners and sodas that have 12 spoons of sugar and all of those Soft, and soft drinks that we were talking about earlier. So this diagram here on the left, these little house-shaped things are called pentoses. So in chemistry, fructose is a pentose-shaped sugar. It's not ready to be used by the body, so the first place it goes is the liver. Now, several things can happen. As fructose enters the liver, the liver can sort of take it apart and reassemble it as glucose. And so it could store it right here as glucose, and the storage form of glucose is called glycogen. So again, fructose goes to the liver, can be converted to glucose, and just stay there for later and feed you at night while you're sleeping. Or fructose can come in, get converted to glucose, and go into the bloodstream. So people who have too much are going to still see a high blood glucose from it, but it can also turn to fat. So this is the the problem with having too much high fructose corn syrup and sugars is that fructose can be converted to fat in the liver. And if it stays in the liver, it contributes to fatty liver, which is a common problem people are dealing with. It can also be converted to fat and come out into the bloodstream and raise your triglycerides. So there's a lot of different pathways But if you're sucking down soft drinks, you're getting a lot of it, and it could have these detrimental effects. So now we're going to talk a little bit about hypertension, high blood pressure. The target blood pressure for people with diabetes is generally 140 over 90, you know, as an upper limit. So blood pressure lowering tips include things like weight loss. Again, weight loss helps with your lipids. It helps with improving insulin sensitivity so your insulin works better. Um, And it helps lower your blood pressure. Exercise does the same. Excess alcohol can raise your blood pressure, so limiting alcohol and avoiding smoking. But the real diet, dietary thing, is limiting sodium. So the, the number of milligrams of sodium per day recommended as an upper limit is 2,300. So 2,300 milligrams of sodium a day is considered the cut point. Many Americans have 4,000 milligrams of sodium a day or more. The Heart Association or your particular provider might recommend a lower amount because certain people with certain heart issues or kidney issues need to be on less, but that would be for you to discuss with your provider. And then, of course, many people are taking blood pressure medications, one, two, or three different ones. 
When you're looking at the sodium on a label, that information um, can be looked at in two different ways. You can look at the milligrams of sodium, and if you can't read it, it says 160 milligrams. Or you can look at the percent daily value off to the right side. So this is a time where you can get some value out of looking at that. And I gave a little key here in the bottom. If you look at the percent daily value, the definition of low is 5% or less. The definition of high is 20% or more. So if you're looking at a label for a quick glance, 5% or less is low in that substance, and 20% or more is high. So, of course, we love high fiber, and we would love um, l- low cholesterol or low sodium. So, it, you know, it's not always that one is good and one is bad, but in terms of sodium, we kind of want to go lower. If you look at the milligrams, 140 milligrams is the definition of low, and 400 is high. Now, it doesn't mean you can't have, like, this frozen meal, that has 700 milligrams of sodium. Because if your daily budget is 2,300 and your breakfast is oatmeal, you know, and you have this nice lunch, yeah, you could have this dinner that has more sodium because it's still within your daily budget. So that's how you would evaluate a label. Ways to limit sodium would be herbs, spices, garlic, ginger, things like that. Limiting cured meats. All of those cured meats have salts added. Pickled products are high in sodium. Um, if your expiration date on your packaged food is 2022, it's probably very high in sodium. If your lunch is peel back the paper, add the hot water, it's high in sodium. So um, just pay attention if you have high blood pressure. What about supplements? Certainly people with diabetes are targeted in many ways to buy supplements, you know, promising that it's going to help um, with diabetes management. But when you look at the guidelines from the American Diabetes Association, they're not necessarily recommending that everybody has uh, additional vitamins and minerals or supplements. Now, people who take metformin may need B- B12. So, you know, you can talk to your doctors about that. But routine use of antioxidant supplements are not recommended, um, and the Diabetes Association says that's due to lack of evidence of efficacy and concerns using them long-term. But there are going to be certain people that need certain vitamins, and I'd say a lot of adults don't get enough calcium, for example. And so figuring out if you know your bones are at risk and you need to take calcium, then that's a good thing to do. So I thought maybe I'd throw in a couple quick case studies. And so this is Bob. This is, this is somebody that actually came to see me. He's 55 years old. He does have a BMI consistent with being obese, and his lipids are elevated. His blood pressure is elevated. Um, sedentary, lives alone. He doesn't read that well. English is actually his second language. And he wasn't that thrilled to see me. He actually told me he was only there because his doctor told him he had to come. So that made me feel real good. But he hadn't been self-monitoring his blood glucose, and he didn't have any recent A1C. So I thought, you know, this is not going to be a guy who's going to want to count carbs. So I, you know, the first thing is, is he has multiple issues, type 2 diabetes, grade 1 obesity, hypertension, high LDL. And his barriers to learning are, first of all, he wasn't that thrilled to be there, but he didn't have a lot of support. He lived alone, English was his second language, and his reading level was pretty low. So I thought, what can I give him that's going to give him sort of the most bang for the buck that covers across some of his issues? And I, you know, I wanted to keep it really simple, establish a relationship where maybe you'd want to come back into multiple visits. 
and I knew his doctor was going to give him certain medications as well. But we focused on ways that he could lose a few pounds. Remember, um, 5 to 10% of your starting weight might be the initial goal. So I, I figured, you know, let's start with 5%. And that seemed doable to him. He was expecting to be told he had to lose, you know, 70 pounds or something. So we talked about ways of managing portions with the plate model and the hand model, and he really connected with that, and he bought into it. And then I did give him just this list of lean proteins. So I, you know, like you shop from this list, you keep the protein the size of your palm, and he walked out of there a happy guy with some with a plan to get things, you know, started. It doesn't always have to be complicated. I wanted to talk about alcohol real quick. So alcohol does increase the risk of hypoglycemia, low blood sugar, if you take insulin or certain medications that lower. Basically, it's the pills that cause your own body to make more insulin, sulfonylureas, you know, like glipizide, gliburide, things like that, um, or injected insulin. So what this curve shows is what the blood glucose might be doing after a meal. Again, I said the highest blood glucose might be in one to two hours, and the meal might take about four hours to digest. So that's where the available glucose is at first that you're surviving on, is the digestion and absorption of the carbohydrate. Remember, some of that gets stored in the liver. And when you're between meals or overnight, you're using the glucose from your liver, and that's what you're surviving on. When you drink alcohol, alcohol goes through the liver to be processed, and it is going to be turned into usually triglycerides. It's a chemical reaction that I wrote up there that you don't really need to know. But the thing that you do need to know is alcohol is processed in the liver, and while the liver is busy doing that, it can't let glucose out as well. It can't do gluconeogenesis, which is the making of sugar when it's needed. Now, the issue is if you've got somebody who's taking insulin and that insulin is in here expecting this certain level of glucose to be available, and now you take that away, you cut off the supply, the insulin's too strong, and the blood glucose level drops. So the risk of drinking if you take insulin or certain pills is low blood sugar, so be aware of that. Now some people say, but don't you, doesn't alcohol turn to sugar? Alcohol doesn't turn to sugar, and hard alcohol has no carbs, bourbon, gin, vodka, whiskey, scotch. Even wine, you know, we're from California. We know that wine is fermented. The juice is turned into wine. You lose the sugar there. So there's only about two, three, maybe four grams of carbohydrate in a glass of wine. Now, if your drink has fruit and umbrellas and things like that, then I'm sure it's got lots of sugar. Um, but beer would be another one that has a little bit of carbohydrate. So beer has about 13 grams, and that varies. Some beers, the good beers, have a little bit more. So recommended limits on alcohol if you want to be wise about it. Um, generally, the Heart Association, I think Diabetes Association agree, women limiting to one drink per day, men to two, and what counts as a drink is a 12-ounce beer, not the kegger cup, and a five-ounce glass of wine, not the wine you'd like to pour at home, um, and then <laughs> one and a half ounces of hard alcohol. And the real key is, is just don't drink on an empty stomach. Be safe. Because if your liver's busy with the alcohol, as long as your stomach's busy digesting some carbs, you've got carbs. You just don't want to be drinking on an empty stomach. But when do people drink? The older generation, it's the pre-dinner cocktail. What if lunch was five or six hours ago? You've got no lunch left. 
the younger generation, late nights, parties, clubs, bars. And that becomes a dangerous thing because how late are you out drinking? How many hours? How many drinks? The thing is, is when you're drinking and your liver's not letting out sugar at some point, you might get low, and if people saw you drinking and you're stumbling around, everybody sort of assumes you're drunk, and that's an issue if you're low. And then what about when you go to sleep? If you're severely low while you sleep, that can be life-threatening. So when you are treating lows, since we're talking about lows, I just want to remind you what I said earlier. Fat delays digestion, so don't use chocolate to treat your lows. Chocolate is delicious, and have it when you want a special snack, but don't use it to treat lows. The things that will get through your system the fastest are those liquids like juice. So four to six ounces of juice, or a tablespoon of sugar mixed in water, or some honey, four glucose tablets. Those would be things that would raise your blood sugar quickly. But always remember to recheck your blood sugar in 15 or 20 minutes. A lot of people forget that step. Also think about where your insulin is. If you do take insulin, here's two different... This is What this diagram shows is the blue line, the injection action of the insulin at the three meals. The green line might be the Lantus, Levomir, or something like that. If your blood glucose is low and you took your insulin an hour ago, pay attention because that means you still have three hours of insulin that's going to crank on you. Versus out here, if your blood glucose is low and your lunch shot is worn off, there's not as much crank down on the insulin. So when you're treating a low, think about where your insulin is in your system. Because certainly, the first one's going to take more carbohydrate to bounce back. Let's talk a little bit about exercise. In terms of everybody, we all benefit from exercise. But in terms of type 2, it really is a treatment strategy. It decreases insulin resistance. Your muscles are burning glucose, helps with weight management, helps with lipids, fitness, blood pressure, reduces stress. It's super important for everybody to do. The prescription on it is including something aerobic, and that's not going to be the same for everybody in the room. We're not going to go the same pace. We're not going to go the same distance. If right now you're not doing anything, maybe you're going to do five minutes. So pick something that's realistic for you and start with that. And maybe start with three times a week. But work your way up. The goal really as a treatment for all of the health things we're talking about, uh, the recommendation is to get at least 150 minutes per week, not more than two days in a row without getting some activity, but also to include resistance exercises like the machines at the gym or the little hand weights while you're watching TV or push-ups yourself, something like that. In general, we could all just stand up and move around every hour or 90 minutes rather than being locked to the computer screen or something like that. Move around, reduce sedentary time. Even somebody with limited mobility could be doing upper body activities. There are sit-and-be-fit armchair kind of YouTube videos. You go on YouTube, you search for exercise for seniors, you search for seated exercise, and you'll find all kinds of things you can watch on your computer and do in your house to do some fitness at home. Don't forget to drink plenty of fluids. When your glucose levels are elevated, your kidneys are working hard to get rid of the glucose, they're making more urine, and you get dehydrated if you don't put back in the fluid. And as people age, they naturally lose that thirst mechanism. I used to have to tell my dad, you know, this is what you need to drink today and put it in a pitcher because he wouldn't ever be thirsty. 
Exercise safely. Keep your meter and supplies handy. Be prepared for hypoglycemia if you're somebody who's taking medications. Carry your carbs. Keep hydrated. Take care of your feet. If you've had diabetes for a long time, you have any foot problems, you have any nerve problems in your feet, you want to have the proper shoes and socks. You want to visually inspect your feet. You want to avoid jumping rope and pounding your feet if you have some some nerve damage in your feet. You want to wear medical ID. It would be a wise thing to do. So let's talk about this little quick case study. We have a female, 63 years old. She's had diabetes 20 years. Not her fault. She ended up with some neuropathy in her feet. She didn't really have access to health care. They didn't really know as much 20 years ago either in terms of treating diabetes, and her blood glucose levels ran high for a long time. She also has a family history of heart disease. She has grade 3 obesity, and her blood pressure is elevated. So what's going to be realistic for her? So the most important thing about her is she's telling me that she can't feel her feet very well. So what I would suggest is something that is, you know, not so heavy of weight-bearing. So it could be something like cycling or swimming or a water aerobics class, chair exercises, but not a Stairmaster where you're pounding your feet down and not positioning your feet properly. Kids get type 2, too. So if you have type 2 diabetes, it's important to think about the offspring, the kids, the grandkids, and take a look at them. Who's at risk and who should be screened? Children should be screened who are overweight. So I did about 16, 18 years in the pediatric diabetes clinic at UCSF, and we had quite a few kids with type 2 diabetes, but none of them were thin. You know, when you're talking about type 2 diabetes, those kids generally have a family member. You know, you're looking at what are the risk factors. They're listed here. So kids who are overweight and have at least one risk factor should be screened. The risk factors are family history. Mom has diabetes or dad has diabetes. They're from a high-risk ethnic group. They have hypertension themselves. Acanthosis is the dark skin on the back of the neck. You can see it. If that teenager has that, that's a risk factor. Dyslipidemia. PCOS is polycystic ovarian syndrome. Even kids that were born small for gestational age are at increased risk for type 2 diabetes, or if their mother had gestational diabetes, particularly uncontrolled. So when should these kids be screened? Starting at age 10. Or puberty, if it occurs before then, and it should be every three years. I think too many people walk around with diabetes for too long, and because diabetes doesn't hurt, it's really easy to ignore and not know you have it, and so there should be a critical push for getting people screened. So healthy tips for healthy kids, balanced meals, appropriate snacks, you know, fruits and vegetables, the good things that they should be eating, leaner proteins, um, limiting the fried food, fast foods, and staying off the juices and soft drinks. The, the pediatricians are saying young kids limit to four ounces of juice a day and older kids eight ounces a day. It's just too many calories. 16-ounce juice is 300 calories. Provide healthy snacks. It's what you keep in the house for them. Get them active. Get them exercising, doing sports. Too bad that the schools often pull sports and PE, but that's a really important thing for them to be involved in. And um, limit screen time. And I have two teenagers, and I know that's a really, really hard one. So trying to get everybody out and moving. So as a quick review before we take questions, 
diet and exercise are foundation treatments for anybody who has diabetes, type 1 or type 2. And if there is a weight um, issue and you want to get some of the weight down, don't be discouraged. Start with 5% of whatever your starting weight is and go from there. And carb counting isn't always necessary for somebody with type 2, but it is a, it is a method that can be used for making sure that you're eating an appropriate amount of carbohydrate distributed throughout the day. But carb counting is really, really critically important for somebody with type 1 who's trying to adjust their insulin to the different foods that they eat. Simple strategies for a lot of people work well, like the plate method that we looked at or the hand method. Really simple thing is get the sugar-sweetened beverages out of the house. Remember that type 2 diabetes runs in families, and it's important to be screened. Diabetes is largely self-managed, and you're all here, which is great, and there just needs to be a big push to get the education so that you can do a good job at that. Okay. Four minutes before my cut time. <laughs> yes. So um, the question was, does, is brown rice a soluble fiber source? And many things have both, soluble and insoluble. Brown rice is one of them. Um, barley, I think, has a little bit more. Some, even rice bran has some of the both types of fiber. And it's hard to get that information because they don't list it on labels. And they don't really have that many tables. Even if you go to Calorie King to look f- foods up, you can see the fiber, but they don't break it out. So I would just do a search online for, you know, like soluble fiber sources. I listed some of them. Yes. What about intermittent fasting? Um, I think that that is something that you'd have to look at personally according to whatever your reasoning is and what your overall metabolic, you know, system is in terms of what are your lipids and so forth, what's your weight. But one, one concern about fasting is... If you're fasting too long, you are tapping into your muscles to convert your muscles into glucose, and you are breaking down fat, of course, and turning that into ketones. But if people do that on a regular basis, their bodies can adjust the metabolism down. You can kind of slow down your metabolism um, because your body's breaking itself down, and it's going to do that protectively. So I think that it would be something to discuss with your provider, Um, And it depends on how often you do it. And I know that there are certainly people for religious reasons, you know, that don't eat from dawn until dusk, you know, and that we have to work with that situation and make that work. Yes. Okay, so the question is, she pointed out that the guideline, that guideline that I gave about how often to screen kids is from the American Diabetes Association guidelines. Her question is, is what about adults? I believe the age that they list that everybody should start being screened is age 45. But if you have risk factors, sooner. And how often, your question was, should it be annual? And I think if you're getting an annual exam and you're getting blood drawn anyway, yes. I definitely would. Because you can get an A1C that tells your average blood glucose over a three-month period. It kind of gives you the big picture. And you could also get a fasting done at the same time. And that's two out of the three ways of screening for diabetes. So it would be a wise thing to do if you have risk factors. Yes. So um, 
I'm not sure I understand the question. So you're talking about when mom is pregnant. Are you talking about a mom who has gestational diabetes? Well, yeah, if, if the mother has diabetes while she's carrying a child, mm-hmm. is, she going to, is that baby going to have the same? Is the baby going to have diabetes? Well, yeah, or is there a way to protect the baby? Yes. Okay, so yes. So in pregnancy... Um, the baby is taking glucose from the mother's bloodstream and using that for growth and development. And in fact, it's critically important that pregnant women have enough carbohydrate during their pregnancies and that they don't restrict when they're pregnant. Um, If the mother's breaking down her own body and making ketones during pregnancy, the ketones pass to the baby and they're not especially healthy. That's like third world stuff, not enough food. So the mother having diabetes doesn't impart the risk directly. What happens is if her blood glucose levels are elevated, if they're running high too frequently, when the glucose levels in the mother are elevated, the extra sugar goes to the placenta and gets to the baby. Then the baby gets extra calories, and the baby doesn't need that much glucose, so the baby converts it to fat, and then the baby gets bigger, so that's macrosomia. That in itself is a risk for diabetes. When they, when they do ultrasounds on, on infants and see all this abdominal fat, that's an, a, a big risk for metabolic disease in the future, including um, obesity and type 2 diabetes. Um, the other thing is, is the baby's pancreas has to make all the insulin to deal with that influx of glucose. And so the baby's pancreas is working turbocharged, trying to deal with all that glucose. And that effect on the pancreas of the baby can also play into the risk of developing diabetes. But if mother's blood glucose is well controlled and she's checking frequently and there's you know, really strict guidelines, we go through a really strict diet. And remember, her carb needs are higher. Her minimum carbs are 175 grams per day, minimum. And, and we have hundreds of moms having babies here healthy and uh, with well-controlled diabetes, totally possible. Yes. So I, I, I recognize that when I had my fat list up there, is coconut oil healthy is the question. I recognize that I didn't mention it. I don't know if it was like subconscious because I always, you know, there's going to be a different opinion about coconut oil. But I don't think all, it was on the saturated fats list along with the meats and the dairy fats, coconut oil and palm oil are listed there as saturated fats. I don't think they're all equally, you know, when you, when you look at chemistry of fats, It has to do with the chain length of the carbons in the triglyceride, and they're not all the same. So I think they're rankable. You could rank them. And I don't think coconut fat's the same as bacon fat. But as much as I want to move it to a different list, because I love my green curry, the Heart Association and the Diabetes Association and Nutrition, you know, Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics is still listing it with the saturated fats, and so that's where it sits on our handouts. And I think moderation. I think the fad of cook everything in coconut oil, make your popcorn in coconut oil, fry your fish in coconut oil is over the top and not a healthy thing to do. But I think in moderation. Okay, we're at 8.33. If anyone has any other questions, I'll answer them. So feel free. But they're... You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.